Hey, everyone. Happy Sunday to you. How you doing? Oh, my gosh. It's great to see you. Thanks for singing along. I love bringing back those hymns. That's fantastic. Hey, if we, if we haven't met yet, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors. Thrilled that you made it to worship Jesus here together. That's what we're all about. We're about following after Jesus in community. So we're all about this morning here where we sing and learn the scriptures, but we also want to encourage you to get connected into community as well. You can see Brittany on your way out, the connect table. We love to do that. Hey, you know when things, sometimes things don't work just right? So we had that happen today. You might notice it's a little bit darker in here this morning. And the reason for that is we walked in and we're like, wait a second, the lights aren't working. So as you know, we're in the middle of a remodel project and all of a sudden this morning, the lights are not working. So anyways, pray for that. We prayed, we were like, the first thing that we did was like, well, none of us are electricians, but we could pray and maybe that would change something. So anyways, who knows? Maybe, maybe God is waiting for like the moment where I make a really awesome point in my sermon and all of a sudden the lights are going to come up. That would be awesome. I'm not holding, I'm not holding out hope for that, but I'm just saying it would be cool. All right, so you guys, today is an exciting, exciting day because uh, this is week one of a brand new teaching series where we're going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. And our goal is really, really simple. Number one, we want to know Jesus. We want to know the one who gave the message. Number two, we want to understand and we want to live the message of the sermon. We believe its message is true and has wisdom for the modern world and we want to live it out as best we can. And that's the third goal. We want to actually put into practice the things that Jesus is teaching. We don't want to just be good at talking about it. We don't just want to nuance the verses and all of that. What we want to do is we want to live the way that Jesus teaches us to live. And the, and the Sermon on the Mount is all about these like beautiful virtues and, and ethics in the kingdom of God. So let's get things started by, um, let's stand together one last time and uh, we're going to read the scripture. All right, so this comes from Matthew chapter 5. Now when his disciples saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for giving us your word, for giving us the truth. In a time of disinformation and confusion and chaos, you give us timeless, eternal truth that has a lot to say about how we are to live and so, God, as we launch into this brand new series, we're just so excited for what you have for our lives. And we just want to commit and dedicate this time to you. The Proverbs say to commit your ways to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. And that's what we ask right now. God, would you speak to us, directly to us? Pray that you would prophesy into our lives today. That although it's, up, it's me up here speaking, that you would somehow use it to benefit us as your church. We love you, Jesus, and everybody said amen. Okay, go ahead and grab your seat. So on August 28, 1963, Reverend Martin Luther King gave one of the most memorable speeches in the history of the world, I Have a Dream. You guys remember that speech. Some of you were alive to hear it. I'm kind of jealous, quite honestly. It's such a powerful, powerful speech. So I just wanted to share with you a very short clip of that, uh, that, that speech from 1963. Let's go ahead and play that now. That one day, 
This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yeah. I have a dream that one day... All right, that was just on repeat, but oh my gosh, you guys, that speech still has power, doesn't it? Because you can hear the hope in his voice, even though he's facing that intense and extreme discrimination. And almost 60 years later, you can still hear and you can still feel his message resonating with that crowd at the National Monument. And that speech became really the defining moment of the civil rights movement. And when the, it was the point in time when the call for equality in America could no longer be ignored. Now, of course, we still have a long ways to go. Dr. King's dream is still being realized. And we have our role to play in that. And that is, of course, to love our neighbor. But it's interesting to me because every day in America, there are thousands of speeches given at schools, at churches, at conferences, on the Senate floor, like uploaded to YouTube and like whatever, over podcast and all of that. But within a couple of days, most of those speeches that are given every single day are just completely forgotten. Have you thought about that? Isn't that interesting? Not Dr. King's I Have a Dream and not Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Why is that? Why is it that every couple of generations there is a speaker and there is a message that resonates so deeply that it's written onto the script of human history and will never be forgotten? I think it's for, for a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's coming from a credible witness or a credible voice, Dr. King, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Number two, they, they encompass the human struggle in a really profound way. Like, for example, for Abraham Lincoln, at the, when he gives the Gettysburg Address, he's declaring in a, a, in a profound way the freedom and equality for all humans made in the image of God, but he's doing it on the very battlefield where tens of thousands of people literally died to fight that exact cause. And another reason why there are these certain messages that I think resonate so deeply that they will never be forgotten, and that's because they offer a promise of a better future. And that's exactly what I Have a Dream is all about. And the Sermon on the Mount is actually one of those messages. 2,000 years later, the message still holds as one of the most brilliant and memorable teachings in the history of the world. In fact, even non-Christian historians accept that the sermon has significantly shaped the ethics of the Western world. Like significantly. So you can read the whole thing in about five minutes. I've done that a couple of different times. But in it, Jesus introduces ideas that have become basic building blocks of our society and Western civilization. For example, the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. Anytime you hear that, someone is quoting Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Other ideas too, like loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. This is, of course, where we get the Lord's Prayer, which has formed the way that the church prays for these last 2,000 years. It's also where we got the phrase, do not worry about tomorrow, because each day has enough trouble of its own. See, even things like the Lion King have been informed by the Sermon on the Mount. They're just riffing on Jesus' teaching. These ideas have come to shape Western culture. So Jesus is he's prolific. This message is prolific. And I believe if you have ears to hear in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promises 
a future that's actually worth living into and participating in. So today, all I want to do is just point out four things that are going to help us hear Jesus' full message. Not just the parts of it that we're used to hearing, but we want to hear it for all that it's worth. And so for that, we have to kind of go back a little bit in the backstory and start to get a fuller perspective. So first of all, the Sermon on the Mount takes place within a story takes place within a story. This is super important because we have a tendency in Western civilization or Western church to analyze the words of Jesus like they're in a vacuum, as though Jesus were like giving us instructions for how to like put together kitchen appliances or something like that. But that's not at all what's going on here. Thank God it's much more compelling and interesting than that. Jesus was a Jewish man from Nazareth with a rich backstory during a time in Israel of great unrest and fear, not unlike today. And so I just want to give you the, the real basic uh, plot line of the story so far. And for some of you, this will be review. Others of you, this may be a little bit new. So Israel at the time of Jesus' life is enemy occupied by the Roman Empire. So what this means is that Roman soldiers sort of strolled through and walked through the streets of Galilee enforcing Rome's power. They would seize your possessions and your property and they would charge exorbitant taxes. So if you know the story of the Bible, you know that God had promised Israel that they would dwell in that land that they were occupying and that they would enjoy freedom to worship God and to live in obedience to him. But for hundreds of years now, at the time of Jesus's life, that hope that Israel had was being crushed by the empire's tyranny. That's what's happening in the story so far. And then into that complex cultural story, Jesus bursts in on the scene in this super fascinating way. For example, in the early chapters of Matthew, uh, a really important, a really a few important, really important things happen. So first, Jesus is depicted as the son of David, which is really prophetically curious from Matthew chapter one. Uh, in chapter three, he's baptized by John the baptizer. In chapter four, he overcomes temptation and outmaneuvers Satan, which is hugely significant that Jesus is able to withstand uh, the temptation of the enemy and be blameless and be victorious over evil and all of that. It's a beautiful and important thing. And then he starts traveling around Galilee after he overcomes temptation and he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's performing all kinds of miracles. And right in the middle of that story too, he's inviting people everywhere to follow after him or to become his disciple. This is by far Jesus' most favorite topic of conversation, to follow him, become his disciple. And while he's doing all of these things, he's also making a very important announcement. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's talking about the inbreaking kingdom of God. And this is like a summary message, if you will, of everything that Jesus had to say as a traveling preacher. And he's spreading the good news. Really, what we're meant to see here is the good news that everyone has basically given up on at this point in the story. He's saying, remember what God has promised. Do not lose hope. A new day is coming, and Jesus, and through my, through my work, something new is happening. A new era is dawning. Watch and see what God is about to do. So, so, so far, here's what we have. We have this sort of uh, prophetic, 
prophetically curious kind of thing in, in, in Matthew chapter 1. You also have Jesus' proven character. You have his victory over evil. You have his compassion for the sick and the hurting and his authority to heal them. You also have him inviting people to follow after him and you have him announcing the kingdom of heaven. All of these things are sort of pointing to this reality that maybe Jesus is the promised one. Maybe he's the anointed one. Maybe he's the coming Messiah. And all of that anticipation and all of that hope-filled expectation is the backstory is leading up to this moment, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is what's going on in the backstory. And then it says this, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. So you can, you can start to appreciate the story that the Sermon on the Mount sits in. And as we launch into this series, I've been praying a lot for us as a church. I've been praying for you as individual members of the church. And I've just, as I've heard a lot of your stories, I know that this is a difficult time for many of you. I spoke with a woman this week who tragically lost her baby in utero. Um, I've heard up from others of you about your job insecurity. There's um, others who've lost family members recently, not to mention just like sort of the hangover from COVID and the, dang, uh, the sort of depression and anxiety that sort of follows that. I know th you've been going through a lot. And I think it's important for us to just recognize that the last year and a half has been testing our resolve. It's been testing our resiliency in the hope of God's promise and in our real faith. And I just think that as we launch into this series, I think it's important that we notice that, that we come to terms with how the turns and the ebbs and flows in our story have affected the resiliency of our hope in the Lord and our faith in God. And I think it's okay. In fact, I think it's honest of us, it's self-aware of us to notice that. It's actually be where we actually are and turn to Jesus in it. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 18 says this. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed in God. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offsprings be. Without weakening in his face, he, uh, and in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. I love that scripture, because you have Abraham and Sarah who've dealt with decades and decades of infertility. And then after decades of infertility, God speaks to him and says, you are going to be the father of many nations. You will have many, 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 many offspring. And somehow, in spite of all that reality had taught Abraham and Sarah over the course of their life, they hoped in God for an additional 25 years after that promise was made that what God said he would do, he had the power to do it. And there's that, there's that prophetic hope that's alive in the people who are following Jesus at the base of the, of the mountain, at the Sermon on the Mount. There's people who are beginning to hear again, good news, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. 
There's this, there's this curiosity. There's this hope that's being provoked again. And I hope that we can do that together today. That we can cultivate the hope and the faith that we have in looking for the work that Jesus is up to. So it begins with a little bit of self-awareness and just noticing where we are today and wherever you're at, it's totally good. It's totally okay. Okay, that's number one. The sermon sits in a story. Number two, the sermon takes place on a mountain. The setting really matters too. Um, I promise there's gonna be a payoff um, on this detail, so just hang with me for a minute. It's not the sermon on the beach. It's not the sermon at the park. It's the sermon on the mount. And that's actually a really important clue to the message of the sermon. Again, if we're going to hear the full message of the sermon, we cannot analyze the details or the words of Jesus in a vacuum. We have to appreciate the bigger picture that the scripture is painting. So, for example, um, one thing that I love about the internet is Wikipedia. You can go and you can look and find anything on Wikipedia. You can learn everything about anything at all. Like this week, I learned about the origins of the high five. Apparently, in the 1970s, a couple players for the L.A. Dodgers, like, after a good play, slapped their hands together. And today, 8 billion people all the time slap each other's hands together. The high five was born in the 1970s. It's crazy. You can learn anything or everything about anything. Um, so when you're reading a Wikipedia page, you might have noticed that there are these important words that are highlighted in blue. And when you mouse over those words, um, it hyperlinks to another Wikipedia page about that topic or that word or whatever. So an article when you launch Wikipedia could be filled with all kinds of blue words and hyperlinks to all kinds of different articles that overlap with the thing that you're actually researching. That's called a hyperlink. We understand that. It's really kind of interesting. But the Bible has all kinds of hyperlinks too. The fact that Jesus sat down on a, on a mountain to deliver his sermon is somewhat of a hyperlink back to another important moment in the story of God's people. Did that point hit home? Did that make sense to all of you? Okay, I'm getting at least a handful of nods, so I guess we, we did okay. All right, so um, here's what the hyperlink means. Look with me at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus was Israel's salvation story. So when you think about Exodus for the people of Israel, it's kind of like the revolutionary war period was for people in the United States. It's like their origin story. It's also the story of their salvation. And here's how the story sort of begins. Moses, um, God appears to Moses, and this is what happens. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, or the Mount of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a burning bush. Okay, so here's what's happening. The presence of God appears to Moses in the burning bush at the base of Mount Horeb, or what's later known in scripture as the Mount of the Lord's Presence. We talked about this at length during our Holy Spirit series. And this is a super big moment because on the mountain, God is making himself known to his people. He says the ground is holy. He tells Moses his name and he says he hears our cries. He sees our needs and wants to deliver us into freedom. And he's going to use Moses in order to do it. This is a super important moment in the, in, in the story of God. And you know how the rest of it goes, right? Moses is afraid. He's not not, like doesn't feel that he's a good public speaker. He doesn't have confidence that he can actually lead God's people. To which I say, join the club, man. I'm the president of that club. 
And, uh, and yet, eventually, he asked the presence of God a practical question, which I think is really interesting. He says, who should I say sent me? He's saying, okay, you're telling me to go back to um, Egypt and to visit the people of God, and you're telling me to lead them out of Egypt. Who should I say sent me? What's your name? And this is, of course, what God says. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I love that. He shares his holy name. So the point, uh, this is the point in the story where God becomes personal to his people. In Exodus chapter 6, just a couple of chapters later, it's the same conversation. He actually makes a covenant, which if you're familiar with the, the theology of the scriptures, you know covenant is really important. It's like a vow. And he makes it to Moses. He's saying, Tell the Israelites, I am your God, and I will deliver you from slavery in Egypt. He's promising this new salvation, and he's putting his name to it. Have you ever signed a loan before? When you sign a loan for a car or a house or something like that, you got to sign it like 50 times. You can say, gosh, I promise I'm, I'm good for it. I'm going to pay you back for this loan. That's kind of what God is doing here in his covenant to Moses, he's saying, I am who I am. I'm putting my name to it. I am who I am. You go tell Israel that I am the one who always has been, the one who's never been created. I will make good on this promise. I will deliver you. That's what I'm going to do. He meets, and then and that's, that's sort of the, 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 the trust that he's calling the people of Israel to step into. And then, What's the first thing that Israel does when they escape the Egyptians across the Red Sea? What's the first thing that they do? They sing a worship song, actually. They, they, they sing a worship song. And then right after that, they go to the Mount of God's presence. They go back to Mount Horeb. And that's where they meet with the presence of God. And Moses ascends the mountain. He meets with God, and then he receives the ten Commandments. Okay, this is what it's taking, the setting, the scene is taking place at Mount Horeb or the Mount of the Lord's presence. So I, I promised there was payoff. Here's the payoff. When Jesus takes the seat on the mountain to deliver the sermon, it's beautiful. There's trees, there's grass, there's wildlife. I'm sure it's really picturesque and awesome and all of that. But more than that, it's signaling to us that God's presence is here with us again and he sees our pain. He hears our cry, and he wants to deliver us again, just like he did during the Exodus story. And not only that, it signals to us that Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses, the leader who will guide God's people out of slavery, through obscurity in the desert, and into the promised land to enjoy God forever. And that's exactly what Moses intended to do, and Jesus is sort of modifying in his own way in the present. So Jesus is the new Moses, and there's a new deliverance, or there's a new salvation that's coming, and that's all sort of signaled to us by this idea of the mountain. So we need to understand this premise before we actually study the, the verses of, of Matthew chap, chapter 5 through 7. Because if we don't, we're, we're going to be tempted to do what the Western church has done with the Sermon on the Mount for the last couple hundred years. We tend to see this as morals to live by and high unattainable standards and ideals that we just keep failing to meet. I've seen way too many people just like want to disregard the Sermon on the Mount as like completely unattainable, not even worthy of our time, because... 
we don't know how to read it. We don't understand it. We totally miss the point. But the real, the first message that we have to hear is that God sees us. He sees our pain. He hears our cries. And he wants to deliver you or save you. Glenn H. Stassen, he wrote this great book called Living the Sermon on the Mountain. In it, he writes this. The Sermon on the Mount is not first of all about what we should do. It is first of all about what God is already doing. It's about God's presence, the breakthrough of God's kingdom in Jesus. It's about grace, God's loving deliverance from various kinds of bondage and the vicious cycles that we get stuck in and deliverance into community with God and others. So in other words, what he's saying here is that the primary message for us to see is God is coming close to us yet again in the person of Jesus, and he's got something new that he wants to do. Which leads us to the sort of the third point for today, the third thing that we have to notice, that God is already at work. He's already working, and the sermon is actually calling us to participate in the in-breaking kingdom of God. That's what the sermon is about. It's about participating in the victory of God and in the reign of God. Remember what Jesus was announcing when he was going around Galilee. He said, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he gathers his disciples. He sits down on the mountain. The first words out of his mouth are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the sermon is Jesus' teaching on what it means to actually participate in or live into the kingdom of heaven. And, um, you know, this is a concept that we really need to um, do our best to understand. Actually, this is um, from my childhood. I grew up in uh, the Christian church. I went to a Christian school. I went to Awanas. Anybody else do Awanas growing up? Yes, come on. Did Awanas. I did the Christian school thing. And it was actually the first year of Bible college that I ever remember like registering in my mind that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was a significant theme in scripture, which is crazy because when you look at Jesus's announcement and when you look at Jesus's teaching, it's his favorite topic of conversation, inviting you and me to follow him into the kingdom of God. And yet I had spent all of my life sort of memorizing scripture, studying scripture, and hadn't really had a clue what the kingdom of God actually is. And so Bible college was the sort of the beginning of my journey into that. And the kingdom of heaven is basically best understood, probably, as just the, the realm where God is reigning. It's not some far off place in the clouds. It's not a future reality. It's where God is currently reigning. Um, Glenn Stassen, again, he says it like this. The kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching is not a place like the kingdom of Monaco or something like that, but a happening. It means God's reigning, God's presence, God's coming to deliver us and reign over us. In our present day language, it's probably clearer to speak of the reign of God. So Jesus' language about reigning did not mean that Israel would rule over the nations or that any human empire with a king would establish, be, be established over other nations. He meant that God was coming to redeem or deliver us from our present mess and would reign instead. So many people probably understood the reign of God as, in part as deliverance from the reign of the Roman emperor or oppression by the temple authorities. But Jesus said that the reign of God will not be about dominion, but about mutual servanthood. 
Okay, so this is incredible. I hope you're catching this. The reality is that the kingdom of God is both here and it's also coming through Jesus' life, through his ministry, through his death, through his resurrection, through his teaching, through his miracles, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is breaking in on the earth and he is reigning. And wherever God is reigning is where the kingdom of heaven is. And so when Jesus proceeds to teach us about the virtues and the ethics and the way of the kingdom, he's saying, you actually can join me. You can actually participate in the breaking in of the kingdom of God. So yes, there are values, there are morals, there are ethics, there are commands, things to do and not to do, but it's not actually about your moral perfection. It's about what God is already doing and him inviting you into a whole new way of life that's filled with his wisdom and with his love. And the the thing that we learn about the kingdom of God, first of all, is Jesus begins to expand about it. Remember, he's been announcing the kingdom of God. Now the sermon, he's expounding on the kingdom of God. And as he expounds on the kingdom of God, it becomes very, very clear, very, very fast that it's totally upside down. The reign of God is upside down from anything else that we've seen in the world. Or maybe it's better said, it's right side up. The first thing that we see is this grand paradox. Something that would never be said in the first century except by Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. That would never be said in Jesus' cultural moment. We're introduced to this paradox or this irony that the kingdom and the reign of God is altogether different from the reign of the world or the kingdoms of earth. It's not at all like the world. So when Jesus rallies his disciples and sits down to deliver his sermon, he's sharing the ethics and the virtues of the kingdom and he's calling you and me to participate in it. It's really important that we see That the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. This is something that's been developed by many scholars over the last couple of hundred years. That Jesus says that his, wherever his will is, wherever his reign, or wherever his reign is, that's where the kingdom of God is. We also live in a world that's in this sort of in-between. We still have all kinds of evil. We still experience all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of hurt, all kinds of pain. I share with you at the top this week, I've just been filled with conversations with people who are like experiencing the very real pain of the world. And yet we have this prophetic responsibility, this beautiful calling, this beautiful uh, inspiring uh, invitation to step in and to begin to obey Jesus fully. And as we obey him fully, we get to see his kingdom come. Which leads us to the last thought for the day. And this is something that we're going to see all throughout during the next 20 or so weeks as we look line by line through the scripture. Living the Sermon on the Mount is the way to become truly human. Living the Sermon on the Mount is the way to become truly human. And by by that I mean, again, we're tempted to see this as a high moral bar that we're just sort of failing to meet. When in reality, what we should be seeing is this invitation from Jesus to become fully who we are designed to be, who we are destined to be. And that's through radical obedience And it's through trusting him in ways that don't make sense. But as we do, we begin to experience the life that we could only have if we trust in Jesus. Um, Jonathan Pennington, who wrote this fantastic book that you should totally pick up. It's called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. He says, the sermon is Christianity's answer 
to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness? What is blessedness? What is shalom? And how does one obtain and sustain it? And the sermon is not the only place in the New Testament or a whole Bible that addresses this fundamental question, but I would suggest that this is the question at the core of the entire message of Scripture. But the sermon is at the epicenter and simultaneously the forefront of Holy Scripture's answer. Jesus provides in the sermon a Christocentric, flourishing-oriented, kingdom-awaiting, eschatological wisdom exhortation. That's a really sort of complex, like loaded statement, isn't it? But I love it. What he's saying is, this is Christianity's answer to how to live the good life. Like how to live the good life is to take Jesus at his word and to obey him fully. And the reason why I think this is an important timing for this kind of message, well, there's all kinds of reasons, but one of them is I was just reflecting uh, recently because I've been hanging out a lot with some of the people in our church who are in the Gen Z category, Gen Z generation, people much younger than me. And what I've noticed is that you who are in Gen Z are so much different than uh, millennials. Like when I graduated high school in 2006, that was like the height of the don't tell me what to do experiment. And if you graduated around when I graduated, you remember that attitude or that sentiment, like, don't tell me what's right and wrong, all of that's sort of fluid, culturally speaking anyways. Don't try and tell me where to go to college, don't tell me what to try and do with my life. I'm my own person, I'm gonna figure it out on my own. You can't tell me, you can't influence me. I'm like my own self-autonomous human being and whatever, right? That was the 2000 to 2010, don't tell me what to do, experiment. And I think it's safe to say that that experiment has been a complete and total failure. Because when we go and set out to try and do life on our own and not learn from anyone else the wisdom from scripture or wherever, we find that we actually come up empty or we end up failing and it's just a mess. So today we, we actually understand, this is what I see in a lot of the Gen Z generation that I get to hang out with, is that we, 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 now we understand that we need and we actually crave a rule of life to guide us into maturity. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for the virtues and the ethics of the kingdom of God. It's how you actually live well. In other words, what we're trying to say is that life cannot get better than walking in obedience to Jesus' teaching. And in it, he's providing this, this guide to live well. Now, um, it's also important to note that the scripture or the, the Sermon on the Mount is not just for the individual. It's actually for the group. He calls many disciples to himself, and he actually presents it to the whole community. So he's essentially inviting us into communion and community with him. And it, it's in the new community. As we live out the Sermon on the Mount, we experience what the scripture would call the good life. So another way to sort of understand this concept of flourishing is the biblical paradigm of wisdom. And again, I want to contrast this with the um, Christian, quasi-Christian thing of just moralism. But instead we want to talk about flourishing and wisdom. So we need to see this study the way that Jesus tells us to. At the close of his sermon, the way that he wraps up. So we talked about how he starts, now we're going to talk about how he wraps up. At the end of his sermon... Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, it says this. It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice 
It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it's, it had its foundations on the rock. And then he goes on to describe the, the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. It's the one who hears the words of Jesus but does not put them into practice. So the sermon isn't just about knowing the right, the right information. The sermon is definitely not about pretending like we perfectly meet the high standards that are found within it. The way of wisdom is actually about practice. He says, the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, which is to say a lifelong commitment to whole person, every part of life discipleship in the new community of Jesus' kingdom. And that's essentially what we're talking about here, is taking the next couple of months and devoting ourselves to hearing Jesus out, to hearing the whole message of the sermon, the parts that we understand, the parts that we don't quite get. And of course, we're going to see the virtues, the ethics, and we're going to be invited to participate in it and to walk in it. So will you commit to the next couple of months of just hearing Jesus out, hearing what he has to say, and then will you commit to practice the way of the kingdom, the ethics of the kingdom? You know, I started today by talking about Dr. King's I Have a Dream, and that speech will will never be forgotten. I think one of the reasons why it will never be forgotten is because it sparked a movement or it gave fuel to the movement that was already started. I was thinking about the same is true for the Sermon on the Mount. The last 2,000 years, there has been a group of people, this unbroken chain of Jesus followers who take Jesus' words and they put them into practice and they try and live them out as best they can, love their enemy, practice the golden rule, turn the other cheek, things like that, and what we begin to see is a movement that comes out of that, that involves a love that just cannot be denied. And I think that's our heart for for, for us and for for our community and for our generation, both of Jesus followers and non-Jesus followers in our city. If we were to put this into practice, if we were to commit to doing things Jesus' way and to living out the values of the kingdom, what in our world would change? So let's stand and and let's pray together and let's respond. Father, we just want to say first and foremost that we are so grateful for your truth. Again, we say thank you that in a time of confusion you bring truth. You bring hope. And God, what we want to experience in life is We just want more of you. We want all of you that we can possibly handle. We want to commit ourselves to lifelong, whole-person discipleship. Thank you for showing us that this teaching doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's baked into the story of your people. We're not just individuals floating around in a secular society, we are a part of the community that you formed when you gathered everyone to the base of that mountain. You sat down and you articulated your vision, your interpretation of God's heart for his people. you if you're finding yourself in that moment where you're like man I'm the poor in spirit (laughs) 
lot that's happened in my life this week. There's been a lot that's happened in my life this month. Not sure where I stand. I'm, I'm doubting. I'm guessing. I'm in a weird place. Just want to invite you to turn to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Sit down with him on that mountain. Hear him out. Hear, hear him out. Hear his values for the kingdom. Hear about his ethics. What it means to be truly human. And Jesus, we just want to say that we trust that as we practice the things that you teach us here in these scriptures that we actually begin to flourish. We cannot think of a life better lived than one in complete and total obedience to you. So Jesus, we thank you for this time. We pray that as we sing and as we continue to worship, that you would be glorified. Be glorified, Jesus, we pray. All of these things in your name, amen. Let's sing.